The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey guys, it's me, Chriselle Lim, co-founder and CMO of Bumo. As a busy working parent myself, I felt like there was a lack of options for parents and I personally needed more support. So that's what we're doing here on Being Bumo. We're here to make your life easier, a little less stressful, and help you navigate through this complex thing called parenting. So subscribe now to Being Bumo at applepodcast.com slash beingbumo or wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, gotta go. See you guys soon. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. So much loss has taken place over this past year, and that loss looks different for all of us. Just by starting this podcast, I have noticed that so many of my guests had recognized some of the gifts they've received by way of their struggle during this time. But one thing I really want to highlight is human flexibility. I'm not talking about doing the splits here. I'm talking about emotional and mental flexibility, or the ability to adapt, to recreate, to reinvent, and to pivot, to find new paths forward, especially when faced with setbacks. My guest on today's episode of Looking Up is a reality TV alum, an author, entrepreneur, restaurateur, and mom. This native Cali girl has returned home by way of London. She was on the Bravo show Ladies of London for three seasons and is the owner of two Los Angeles hotspots, the Draycott and Olivetta, which by the way, she opened just months before the statewide shutdown. She also is the creator of the new kids snack brand Mavericks. In the face of the pandemic, when restaurants closed for so many months, she reinvented her business model and did so all with the focus on how she could help our healthcare heroes. It's her flexibility, generosity, humor, her ease in finding light in less than ideal situations and tenacious entrepreneurial spirit that makes me so excited to feature her on Looking Up. We talk about the battles we are all facing and how to make our war beautiful. And she reminds me of how much love there is in the world, despite all of the chaos. So before the sort of core of this podcast starts, I like to ask my guests on looking up a few rapid fire style questions just to get to know our guest a little more intimately. So don't think about it too much, just whatever comes to mind. All right, Marissa, is there a book that you have read that has actually changed the way in which you live your life? And if so, please share it with us. I would say The Prophet was the first book that was given to me when I was six. Mm. Khalil Gibran. I, I always go back to it. It's on my bedside. And I'm always, I've been reading it for years and asking questions and getting answers. People think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. People think I'm working but I'm really playing. (laughs) I really like that, actually. I'm actually just having a great time. Three words to describe yourself as a teenager during the high school years. I would say I was tenacious, overexcitable, and very ambitious, very driven. Okay. (laughs) I think that we need need four this time, so we're going to have four in there because they all, I I get them all. (laughs) 
Not because I can see you as dorky. Just I get it because I can relate. I just want to make that clear. (laughs) (laughs) Still a huge dork. I just snorted, so. (laughs) Um, I'm a snorter. Are you a snorter? I'm a snorter. I am a snorter, like, and I don't even try to hide it anymore. I just own it. Like, I'm a snorter and I'm okay with it. Um, I think it's the best. A good snort is like, oh. It is. It's so satisfying. (laughs) Okay, when is the last time you cried? I cried this morning at breakfast. I'm sort of a crier. I mean, not about, I'm like, I, I like see something beautiful and I cry. I'm on a road trip with my father and he did this thing at breakfast where he put, he made us interlock our hands like this. Uh-huh. My dad's 81, I'm 38. And so my hand looks very different than his hand. Now I'll send you a picture. It's sort of amazing. Oh. It reminded me of the passage of time, which I'm just very aware of right now. And then he made us flip our hands over and do this with your dad. It's wild. And the underneath of his hand looks exactly like mine. Oh my gosh. I mean, let's, we can draw all the parallels and metaphors and symbolism, but like he's much older than me and yet he's still a child. And we all are, even though we have these different layers to us, just reminds me of the passage of time. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. Okay. And without too much thought, I feel like I might know some of them right now, just from, from what you've told me, but without too much thought or judgment, three things that have brought you joy today. Certainly spending time with my dad, Mm -hmm. obviously. I just had the most delicious Reuben sandwich of my (laughs) entire life with pickles and sauerkraut. And that brought me great joy. And the third thing, oh, do you know what? There's a gorgeous rose garden at San Ysidro Ranch. And dad and I spent about an hour walking through the rose garden and smelling all the roses. And it was really blissful. This road trip sounds incredible. And like, so I don't feel like many of us think to take the time as an adult to spend one-on-one time with our parents. And it makes so much sense. and, And I crave that. And I don't know why I just haven't found that the niche of time to like do it. And I, you were like very much inspiring me to do that. It's do it, do it, do it, do it because you can't get it back. And I'm like, I want more. I mean, I spoke to my family today and they said, are you ever going to come home? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. By the way, it also makes you appreciate the, the community and the village that you've built. But I think when you get out of it and that's, really important, especially when you're all locked up with each other, you know? Yes. No, a hundred percent. And you're from Southern California, right? You're from, are you from Orange County? Exactly. Yeah. I was born in Laguna Beach and Newport Beach. Okay, cool. And so that's where your dad came up from right now. Now you're back in LA. We live, Uh, yeah. You live in LA. Mm -hmm. Okay. I want to jump right in. Okay. And I want to talk all things ladies of London because- And there's so much to talk about, but like, I know that seems maybe a little bit of a distant amount of time now because you're doing so many other things and we're going to talk about that. But like, I have to say, and I've said this on the show before, I'm not the biggest reality show watcher, but there's a couple that I'm like ride die about. And I obviously, because I'm someone that's obsessed with London and I told you spent like summers there growing up forever. Like I was, I'm just obsessed with it. And so of course I was going to love ladies of London and I watched it. My husband watched it. Sorry. And maybe that's throwing him under the bus or maybe not. I think he'll, I think he'd own it, 
But we watched it like through and through. And I have to say, I miss it. And I loved, I loved everything about the show and you on it, just because you're from Southern California and you were out there and and so much with it. I feel like we all got to know you and the ups and the downs. And there were some really tough, tough moments and tough traumatic times that were part of the show for all of you. But I know you know, for you. And, and, and we're going to talk about that too, I hope. But first of all, how did you even get onto reality television? Like, (laughs) how did that begin? (laughs) And when was it? When did that start? How long had you been in London for? Oh God, I've been in London for long enough. I think our, was I pregnant? I think I was pregnant with Max. I was actually in New York visiting my brother and sister-in-law. And I got a phone call from Noelle Reno, who was on the first season. And she said, um, I've been approached to do a television show. It's, it's for Bravo. And it's like the real Housewives of London, but it's not going to be a housewife show. And they're asking for like, you know, who she would recommend as like the American, like the girl next door type. And I yeah. thought, you. And I said, that's lovely. Thank you for thinking me, but no thanks. And I sort of ended it there. And then over dinner with my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, they were like recounting. I don't know what we were talking about. Or maybe she, one of her friends, and who knows, I can't remember. One of her friends was joining me. Housewives. I said, oh, I just, funnily enough, just got a call about that for London. And she said, oh my God, you've got to do it. And I said, are you out of your mind? I, no, I declined. And she said, you're an idiot, Marissa. Pick up the phone and call her back and you need to have this conversation. I thought, oh, wow, okay. I sort of just did it. And, and she was absolutely right. If nothing else, and whether or not I did it or not, but you don't shut something down straight away. You sort of need to explore it. But I right. was so horrified about the idea of about doing reality television. The idea was so like <laughs> disgusting to me. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Anyway, of course I did it. And then I spoke to the producers. And again, I said, I'm not interested in doing it because the more I learned about it, the more I thought it would be a terrible idea. And then they're, they're very, very persuasive. And equally, there's a school of thought that like, if you don't, if you don't do something, you never know what's going to happen, right. you know? And if it's a total disaster and it blew up in my face, then so it does. I was not afraid of that because I trust myself and who I am, but equally, then it's just like an option of, like, who cares? But right. if it works out and something amazing happens, then, you, then who knows what? And so that was sort of, so I signed. Um, and there you go. <laughs> I was on it for three seasons. Yeah. And was your husband on board and everything? He was the one who convinced me to do it. I was, again, I was very uh, nervous about doing it, tentative. You know, Matt thought it would be great for business. He thought it would be great for me. He thought I would be good on television. And again, part of my nervousness was, you know, he had before me a very successful portfolio of bars, restaurants, and nightclubs. And obviously we would be filming at them and that would be an interesting talking point for the the storyline. But I was concerned that his businesses were successful without me putting them on global television. Mm-hmm. And so what if I did something to... To hurt it or to... to cannibalize it. And so, mm-hmm. Who knows what? I mean, again, I'm not an editor. I'm not a producer. I'm not... Right. I'm just a cast member. And so he was convinced that it would be a good, a good thing to do. And so I, he sort of convinced me to do it too. I mean, everyone told me to do it. So finally, I just gave in. I'm gathering not a lot of regrets. No, not at all. No best parts about being on it? Oh, we had so much fun. I mean, with my girlfriends. And granted, there were lots of ups and downs and right. lots of downs, certainly. I mean, there's drama. In my real life, I don't really have that much drama. It's just not how I operate as a person or a human or a friend. But on, the, on a reality television show, there is drama. And so 
I had to learn how to digest that and react to it and live with it. And that was a challenge, but equally like, you know, my skin is a lot thicker now. It doesn't, Mm. you know, I learned that I don't care that much. And I didn't know that before. I used to care a lot. Were you guys all really good friends going on into the show or were some of or was it like you met some of them on the show? So I knew Noelle Reno for years. Um, I used to know her and Matthew Mellon when she was married to her and engaged him for about a thousand years ago. Juliet Angus uh-huh. was a very dear friend of mine. She's a, a friend. She's a good friend now. We've had our ups and downs, which is what happens on television. But I love her to pieces and her family to pieces. But we were very, very good friends. And in fact, I said to the producers, you've got to put my friend Juliet on the show. She's a firecracker. And if I do something like this, I want her to be next to me. And then Caroline Stanbury, I knew through, I was actually at Sophie Stanbury's wedding to Alex. Matt and Caroline had known each other for about a thousand years. And Caroline and I had a lot of mutual friends, but she and I didn't really know each other in the beginning. Annabelle and I had a lot of mutual friends, but we had never connected ourselves, although we did and I miss her desperately. Adela, I didn't know. Who else was on the show? Julie Montague, I didn't know. Yeah, you know, it's it's fun to have a reason to hang out with girlfriends. And we yeah, were getting paid for it. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> it's like such a racket. It's fabulous. It did look like so much fun. And you guys got to travel and just get into all kinds of of good mischief. Kind of good yeah, mischief. Exactly. <laughs> do you think, having been on a reality television and obviously for multiple seasons, do you think it's possible? to portray your true and authentic self on reality television? Sure. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. If you're doing anything else, you're going to get kicked off the show because that translates to the audience. Right. And so when that didn't come across, then you wouldn't get renewed for another season. Right. It's one of my faults and one of my strengths is I'm generally very authentic. And so I just don't know how to be anything other than that, than wear my heart on my sleeve. And so, you know, it can be a curse, but great as well. So I was able to do that. So, I mean, I right. was nervous sometimes, but also I would be nervous in that environment otherwise, you know? Are there any things or aspects of your life that you thought were necessary to keep sort of private or you, or sort of like, this is not, this is sort of like not okay to be on television or was everything sort of available? It was all sort of for, fair game. I mean, the truth is, is I don't, I don't, and I didn't that like have really nothing that I wasn't comfortable talking about. Mm-hmm. Look, season three for me was a crazy time in my life um, with the birth of our daughter. And it actually helped in some strange way that there were producers around and we were mm-hmm. filming it all because it sort of took me out of the actual moment. and and just my, transported me somewhere else. And equally, I sort of, I stupidly believed in, although it helped at the time, in like the happy ending of television and, mm-hmm. you know, fairy tale. And, you know, at the time I didn't, we didn't know what was, how that surgery would end up um, or if she was going to make it or if I was going to make it. And it was a very, very scary time. And yet in the back of my head, I thought, oh, it's going to be on TV. So get let so you know, the main characters out. die yeah. at the end. <laughs> Just That's interesting. Completely ridiculous, yeah. but like we 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 come up with these things in our head to make ourselves feel better, and it worked. Right, and they're like points of survival, and that's sort of what. That's so interesting because I feel like it could have gone either way. It could have been like, holy crap, this is making my situation much more stressful. Um, and for those people that don't know, you had a pretty traumatic third 
um, birth uh, with your daughter, Sadie. Yeah. And um, you had uh, placenta accreta. Is that what? I had placenta accreta. Yes. And so it was up at your pregnancy was, was sort of on more of the normal side, but the birth was what was really traumatic. Now they actually thought I had placenta accreta at about seven weeks. Oh, I found out I was pregnant very early. And then at nine weeks, usually in the UK, because it's a quite a dangerous condition, they, you abort the baby for medical reasons. Um, because it's too dangerous for the mother. It's just not a great, dangerous. Like why women still die in childbirth right now. Sorry to be so morbid. Nice. Um, by the way, if anyone's listening to this, they've like there, you can get great doctors and you'll be fine. Anyway, they misdiagnosed me, I think about nine weeks and said I didn't have it. And so I carried on with the pregnancy. Wow. I think at like 20, ugh, I can't remember 22 weeks or 28 weeks, somewhere along there they confirmed that I did have placenta accreta. And at that point, they just started pulling a team together. So they brought over um, Dr. David Knott, who's a, a war surgeon in Aleppo, which obviously made me feel much more comfortable and also terrified that I needed some vascular surgeon who was yes. in Syria. But they brought together a great team and they, um, yeah, I'm, it's a distant memory now. How early did you have Sadie? So I delivered Sadie at um, 32 weeks because that is the time when the longer the pregnancy continues, the more dangerous it is for the mother, dangerous it is for the mother, the surgery. But um, the earlier, or if she's delivered, the baby's delivered earlier, then it's obviously, you know, baby needs to cook in the oven a little bit longer. So 32 weeks was the time that was determined. That was the right time for both of us. Yeah. Well, I, I, I remember watching that season and obviously got to see only a a small portion of that, but it was so obviously for many other reasons. And now having been through a different, but traumatic birth and pregnancy of my own, it's pretty courageous of you to have been so open and have it be on television because there's other people that are experiencing, you know, varying degrees of not the perfect pregnancy or the perfect birth. And how frightening, um, you know, and, and I know for you, it was literally a life and death. Like you didn't know what would happen with that surgery for either of you. And you could, the, the fear was palpable for your family too, and your husband. And it's pretty, pretty amazing that you sort of let everyone in on that and such a, and I know after it as well, you, you know, just the anxiety and the fear and, and you talked about, you know, postpartum and, and, and all of that. And I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about, um, your relationship with mental health and. Oh yeah. I mean, I was prescribed Prozac. I took it. There's a test, like a depression test in the UK. And it's like a, you answer all these questions. It's like a scale. If you get, you know, I think you have to get, if you're below 13 points, then you're depressed. And if you're above it, you're not depressed. So I was 13 when we were going to California. We, Sadie was, God, she was born in April. So a few months old. I think we were going in end of July. We just wrapped the third season and, and I was not doing well. My doctor prescribed me Prozac and I said, okay, I'm going to fill this prescription. And I'm not, I don't like taking medication. I'm not like, I take Xanax when I fly because I'm a terrible flyer. But other than that, I'm like, I don't even take, I just don't like taking medication. And I thought, okay, well, I need to do this. I need to sort myself out. But instead, I'm just going to wait a second and and, until we land in California, I'm going to fill the prescription and have the, you know, Prozac in my pocket. And if I need it, I'll start, you know, eating it up like Cheerios. But otherwise, 
I'm going to stick my toes in the sand and run along the beach and just like dive in the ocean and also see if that will also help me at some level. And I did and it worked and I didn't end up having to go on Prozac. And not that, by the way, medication is there for a reason and it's very good and you use it and tap into it. And that's not my, that's not the takeaway of this. It was more mental health for me is it's full circle. It's not just like, I need to sleep. I need to eat well. I need to exercise. I need to swim in the ocean. I need to stick my toes in the sand. I need to lie in the grass. I need to do all of those things. I need to meditate. I need to read poetry. And that helps my mental health in a major way. And now mental health is, I mean, it's the most important. My God, we're all on a tightrope right now, you know? Whereas before, I think we could distract ourselves with daily life. And now daily life, as we know it, doesn't exist anymore. Right, And so we need to like dig really deep and read the poetry and jump in the ocean and like connect with ourselves again in a new way. Yeah. I'm, I'm feeling personally and also just professionally speaking that so much of the shift right now is this like shift in consumption. And it's not just obviously about what we're eating or what we're buying, but it's like what we're spending our actual energy on and the consumption is like shifting in such a fast way to things that are more purposeful and that bring us joy. And it's something that from a research perspective has always been like what I at least quote unquote prescribe to clients, but it's hard to do in daily life. It's the same thing that happened to me with motherhood. Like all of a sudden, all these things that I had a tough time saying no to that I knew weren't filling my cup or weren't, were actually maybe dimming my light and making life harder for me and and taking joy away. I all of a sudden didn't have the time, capacity, attention, energy for, and motherhood sort of just weeded that stuff out for me. And I wish I could have done it myself and chose it for myself, but it was almost like my child came into this world and, and he helped me choose it for us. And I feel like that's happening right now. I think a lot of people, there's not a lot of room for fluff right now, whether it's again, what we purchase or what we eat or what we listen to, what we spend our energy on, who we follow on Instagram, all of that, what we're watching. There isn't much, we don't have the capacity for that right now. So almost like everything around us, even in the physical sense, all of us are spending more time in our homes and even for working, like every object around us, I feel is now like, what is the meaning? What is the purpose? Is it helping me? Is it bringing me joy? And if not, like it's got to go because I need to put something else there. Sometimes you need that, even like the value of empty space. Gosh, I've never personally needed it this bad. Just empty space where there's nothing. (laughs) I'm taking more time for myself than I ever have in my life. And I'm needing it more and I'm thriving in it. And it's like, you need that. We, We were discovering what we need in order. It's survival. It's totally survival. And it's so interesting because I feel like even the smallest bits of time, even if they are in 30 second increments or one minute, like no time is small enough for self-care. So I'm just stealing these little bits of time. And like, sometimes I lock myself in the bathroom and like do my TM for (laughs) I can hear like the mommy and I'm like, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I used to say it was so funny when I, when I first sort of, uh, I think maybe my son was like, 10, 11 months, but I would drive back into my garage and 
like I did this, you know, quite a handful of times before people in the house knew I was doing it, but I would stay in my car for like, Oh, for, oh wait, you know, yeah. the song wasn't done and I really needed to listen to it. Or like, <laughs> maybe they didn't hear the garage and a few times I felt guilty. And then I just was like, no, like this is literally, if I walk in, which I'm happy to, but once I walk in, I am everybody else's game over. But when I'm like in this car and very few times do you get to even be in your car by yourself when you're a parent, which means you don't get to choose the music. Cause I don't know about you, but my toddler is the backseat DJ. Like he tells us every song that he wants to hear in the order he wants so, I mean, thank God it's good music and and we like the same music. I mean, he's not listening to like Shark do 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 whatever that song is. Baby Shark. Baby Shark. He hasn't gotten there yet for some reason. So he listens. Never let no. him go there. No, I, I mean, like, I know I must be deprived. He listens to really good music because my husband loves music and he plays the guitar and he's played him, you know, music since he was in the womb. But sometimes even the best music, you can't hear it that many times. You just can't. <laughs> So yeah, those times to just steal are are so important. What was it like for your kids to be on the show? Oh gosh, they were so little. They don't even, they, they weren't really aware of what was going on. The, the only thing they really remember is when we brought Sadie home, both Max and Jake remember, tell me they had to push through the cameramen to come meet their baby sister and see their mommy. And I, for a moment I thought, what? Shitty. Yeah. <laughs> but that was, maybe that was the only thing. But again is what it was. It was what it was. Did that whole experience, the trauma and getting through it in that year, that's so tough after, is that what sort of brought you back to California? You just felt you needed to be back here. You know, I, I didn't actually have the foresight. It was my husband, Matt. Yes, is the answer. About a month before I delivered, Matt and I were having dinner and he said, if you make it through this and the baby makes it through this, we're going to California. And I was like, what are you talking You're out of your mind? And we spent summers in, in Newport Beach with my family. And it was more of a sabbatical. I think Matt needed a break. I mean, it's not mm. pleasant to be told that your wife, partner, you know, mother of your children may or may not, you know, make it through. Right. And granted, he didn't really let me know what an emotional wreck he was, but I think he needed a break. And I was, it's different when it's your, it's, your body. I mean, I was sort of, I turned into a machine um, because mm-hmm. I think if I let the emotional impact of this all sort of, if I actually understood what was going on, which of course I did, but I just tried to block it out. Um, it, would, it would paralyze me. Right. And I, that was not uh, possible. So I sort of just, you know, what is it? Keep strong and carry on. Yeah. You were like in survival mode. Yeah, I was in survival mode, but you know, he was like, we're, we're taking a break. And so we ended up in, you know, California for a little break, which has now turned into four years, which is <laughs> lovely. And are you guys here to stay? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's hard to go back. I love London. We still have our home there. It's the greatest city in the world as far as I'm concerned, although New York is pretty great too. But California is a lifestyle and I'm a very, I've got a lot of fire in my belly. So like I can, I can run, I can hike, I can jump in the ocean. I can do all of these things. Raising a young family, we have a backyard, we've got a pool. There's like, there's lots of things to explore for the kitties. And while, while they love London and we love London, it was a different thing. You know, they were sort of, you know, properly buttoned up and sitting with good manners, the river cafe. Yeah. It's a different childhood. Yes. That's so true, especially for a child. I mean, it's completely different. A different thing down to schools and, and social gatherings and definitely dressing. And I feel like in, in out here, it, it's sort of like, is it comfortable? 
then wear it. Gosh, I mean, if my children have shoes on, they're yeah, that's... in quarantine, but like I'm winning. Whereas in London, I mean, they were wearing, the boys were wearing sport coats to school, nursery school. Yeah. And like little flap caps. I mean, they're absolutely adorable, but it's a different, you know, my daughter, oh, her London dresses. I mean, now she's still cute, but you know, the boys are like, yeah, they're buttoned. It's a very different look. And by the way, both great. Yeah. Yeah. But you grew up here and your family's here too. I grew up here and it's really nice because my family, I haven't been near my family. I went away to boarding school and then to the East Coast for college. And so I haven't, and then I was in New York and London. So I haven't actually lived in Granite. My parents are, you know, in Newport Beach and Laguna Beach. So it's an hour away, but been in close proximity with my parents. And as you know, having children and having them have a relationship with their grandparents is the greatest joy. It's so amazing. Something you said that really stuck out as an optimism doctor, and, and this is what I do, and, and help define what it truly means to be optimistic. And, and as most of the people out there know, I, I don't define optimism as being positive all the time. That's, that's not what it's about. It really is about being aware and, and knowing the situation that you're in, even if it's less than ideal, and holding that emotion, whatever it is. But at the same time, being able to hold space for hope and knowing that things will will turn out okay, even if you don't know how or when. And so when you were describing your very traumatic, literally life and death experience and saying like, even if it was the TV and the producers and the show that you grabbed onto and like, it sounds so silly now, as you said, like, oh, well, everything just, you know, works out on TV, but like, that was your optimism. Like it was your, it was your tool of like, I don't know how things are going to work out. I have no idea how they are or how it's going to happen or when exactly, but I know they will. And like something will be okay at the end of this. And it's pretty amazing. Um, it's a tool and a skill that I feel like we all actually possess. It's just that it's not, we don't exercise it like a muscle as much. And once you start doing that, it's pretty, it's one of the most powerful tools, I think, to just get through life in general. I want to interrupt you I um, because I think this is such a lovely quote. My dad and I were outside at this coffee shop here in Montecito yesterday, and we struck up a conversation with this couple next to us. And my dad is, <laughs> I call him my own prophet because he really is. And somehow he asked this gentleman for some advice. And my dad was sharing advice to this gentleman and this couple. And this gentleman came back and the gentleman's advice was, make your war beautiful. And that just has stuck with me and granted it's only been 24 hours, but make your war beautiful is such a nice way to say in this time, there's always a silver lining. How can we create this to be so wonderful? Mm. And it makes me so rethink everything. Yeah. Not rethink everything because generally I'm pretty optimistic, but it's like, let's, it's all pretty good. Life is good. Well, I love that because it's not discounting the war. We're all in a battle We're and all fighting battles. Right. And there's a global pandemic, which this right. doesn't help. Right. No, I, I love that. That that's actually such an amazing quote and very optimistic. I mean, it's similar to, you know, when in other formats that I talk about, we all like things like stress. We all have stress because stress is a response to life. And if you look at it that way, then you know that we all all are going to have stress. So it's not discounting it, but like sometimes stress can actually be looked at in a positive light or even a neutral light. Like it could just be telling you something. Could be your body giving you a signal or a warning. And We're animals, right? We're on, you know, Serengeti and we are animals and then we are stressed out and why and we need to understand that. 
Yes, absolutely. I want to talk to you about your restaurants, plural. Actually, I have to say that the last meal that I had in March before going into the safer at home and before I understood everything, it was literally the last meal I had was with some other moms at the preschool we were about to start at Oliveta. And yeah, it was like stuff was just starting and it was like, there were six of us. It was a girl's night out and it was so lovely. So many things that you guys are doing and shifting and adapting um, with the Draycott and Olivetta. And I've been reading all these reviews and people just have the most positive things to say about feeling safe and, and all the measures that you're taking. And I want you to share about how you guys shifted and how this has, this whole pandemic has obviously impacted you guys having restaurants, but also how you guys have shifted. And then I want you to talk about you give, we cook and they eat because that is incredible. Yeah. So not a time to be a restaurant owner, that's for sure. But, (laughs) but yeah, but moving swiftly on, because we didn't think about that before. We didn't know there was going to be a global pandemic. And actually, equally, it's what we do and what we love and sort of is in our blood. So we don't have it really have a choice either way. Yeah, our restaurants were obviously shut down, I think, middle of March. We started doing takeaway, takeout for both restaurants. You know our restaurants. So they're not really, the Draycott and Oliveta, they're not really takeout restaurants. My husband and I like to create an experience that you, you know, we sort of transport you away for the evening that you're with us. And that's hard to package up in a brown cardboard box and deliver on your doorstep. But equally, we realized quickly that number one, we've got to make cash so we can keep our employees in business. And equally, there is something really important about having these little nuggets of your real, the former life to give you hope for the future life. And so even if it was, you know, bottling our famous dirty martini from Olivetta or packaging up the English pea dip to deliver to your doorstep. It's these moments of like, oh yeah, I remember and it's going to be okay. And we're feeders. You know, I'm always a feeder. I always have been. And we usually feed our community in our dining rooms, but if I'm going to feed them around their kitchen table too, at least I'm still doing that. Yeah. And so, and then obviously that we were opening and shutting and opening and shutting and whatever the CDC and Governor Newsom um, required us now the Draycott is open and that restaurant was certainly built for a pandemic because we've got about 120 seats outside, which is really nice. And our community has been so incredibly supportive of us. And I feel safe there because, well, I have to feel safe there. And that's the way we've set up the restaurant. It's interesting. I sort of always used to think of us as being in the business of sex, drugs, and rock and roll and not drugs, obviously, but like (laughs) entertainment, whining and dining and fabulous. And you're going out and it's just, it's fun. I mean, when I say like people think I'm working, but I'm really playing, I really am playing. I mean, I don't differentiate between work and play in my life. I just, I love it. But suddenly we moved from the business of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, again, not drugs, to health and wellness. And I, it's a huge responsibility that we've taken on and, and willingly and, and happily, but we need to protect ourselves and our team members and our community in a pandemic, but also give them a little escape. Like, and that's, that's what Olivetta on Holiday is also all about. So we've opened up a, a, a pop-up, a residency at the Lapeer Hotel for Olivetta because Olivetta is all indoors. I don't have the opportunity like I do at the Draycott to be outside. And so we called up our neighbors at the Lapeer Hotel. And it's amazing because you feel like you're going on an escape. 
and you're outside and it's safe, but the food is incredible. Granted, the balmy weather is wonderful. There's fairy lights, there's a pool, we've got a DJ, the cocktails are great. And you just feel like for a moment, taken out of this very scary time that we're in, you know, we're making the war beautiful. Yeah. And it's a really nice, it's wonderful. And it's, we're so grateful to have the support of our community to be able to do it. It's a joy. Our, our teams are the most talented artists on the planet. I mean, everyone from the chefs to the bartenders to, you know, to the, the creatives, our DJs, everyone who works on our team at the Draycott and Olivetta. But because the Olivetta was closed, they, they weren't doing anything. Right. And there's nothing worse that when you're, I think, like an artist, you, you're not playing, you know, mm-hmm. and they need to Creating. play too. And so they've been able to get back doing what they do best. And that's such a joy. And all my friends who are coming are like, I mean, they're all saying, oh my gosh, all about it was the last restaurant I went to pre-shutdown. And now it's the first one that I'm coming back to. And I, I feel like I'm on vacation. I feel like I'm on a holiday. And again, I book another table next week. I'm like, great. Yes, yes, yes. But we all need those moments of joy right now. Yeah. And so it's such, I'm, I'm so grateful that I'm in a position, my husband and I are in a position that we can give that to people. Um, and to the same point to you give, we cook, they eat, which is obviously the name of a program that I was just like, okay, what is this going to be? Um, <laughs> you give, we cook and they eat. That happened very organically. We had a clean kitchen. We had chefs who could cook. We had food in our kitchen. We were shut down. And I thought we've got to make food for these hospital workers because I had a friend who's a nurse and she's like, we're so slammed right now. I can't even eat. And for me, food is life, food is nourishment, it's fuel. And it is for all of us, but we don't always think about it like that. And I think in the toughest times, we need really good soul food. And so I was on, in the car, I think, delivering food to Cedars. And I got a phone call from a friend saying, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I've, just, I've got to go. I'm actually just pulling up to the hospital right now. Um, she asked me why. And I said, oh, we're just, we made some food for the ICU unit here. And she said, what are you talking about? How are you doing that? I said, oh, we just, we're doing it. And she said, well, okay. She took a picture of her credit card. She snapped, she sent it to me and she said, okay, put $2,500 on this. I'm going to do the rest of the meals. You don't need to do all this, Marissa. And I thought, okay. Like, and it felt a little bit weird taking money from a friend because it's not, um, certainly wasn't my intention, but she said, and I, and I told her that and she said, it's not good enough to be told that I just have to sit on the couch and watch Netflix all day. Like I need to be able to do something and I can't do anything, but you can do something. And so I'm going to ask you to do this for me and here's, and it makes me feel good. I thought, okay, well, I understand that because we all need reasons to feel good right now. And then I think I posted that first one and I think I must've thanked her in the, in the caption or something or not. I'm not sure. But I got another message from someone who follows me on Instagram saying, can you call me? I would like to, you know, put $2,000. I would like to donate money to, to this cause. And it's suddenly, and at first I was just like writing credit cards on a post-it note when I was driving. I was like, okay, sure. Pretty soon, I, you know, I set up a GoFundMe and we're, we've almost raised $50,000. Wow. Each meal is $12. We make vegetarian meals. We make meat meals. We're, we're delivering to all the different hospitals, first responders. It's much more than food. It's much more than lunch. Everyone who I talk to whenever I, they're so touched and overwhelmed and grateful that people from around the world are spending their money to help our frontliners and first responders through this crazy time. And it's, look, this world is a wacky place right now. And the state of America is pretty awful, I think. But there's so much love Mm -hmm. at the same time. And we've come to, we are in this together. And there's, 
there's also that, that I feel so much and it makes me burst into tears. Absolutely. Well, I can absolutely relate to the start of this, just feeling like I really need it, like a need, not just even like, I think this is going to be really good for me, but like a need inside of me that was bubbling of like, I need to do something. I want to do something. I have to do something. And I, I knew I had so many tools and expert and the expertise to offer, but I like was just feeling like I couldn't do anything else until I figured out how I could help because I like couldn't move from that. And so in the, in the start of this, I created the things are looking up heroes project and it's a completely free emotional well-being tool for the essential workers. And it all started just from someone that reached out that was the head of a ICU unit that was on the front lines at a prominent hospital. Like we really need the help. We're so stressed out and like, we need some mental health tips. Can you help us? And I said, oh my gosh, you don't know what you just did for me. Like I now know exactly what I have to do. It brought me joy. It probably was selfish, but in like a way that was certainly helping someone else. And then I said, if I can do this for you guys, why can't I'll just make it open for everybody. And it just was like, I couldn't move forward to anything else until like, just like, okay, she gave me life. You know what I mean? This doctor, I totally understand that. And it's one of the greatest tools to increase optimism and happiness from a science backed research perspective is doing something kind for somebody else. Yeah. It makes me feel good. We as humans have that and we're built that way. We're social creatures. And especially right now, when if there's one thing that is giving me like hope right now, it's definitely being able to see everyone uh, adapting. It's, it's amazing. Oh, we are more, we are and deeper and more creative than we've yes. ever been ever. And yes, that's inspiring. It really is. So my last question for you before we end things up, my last question for you is kind of what we already talked about, but what's looking up? We have to give credit to our brilliant, incredible creative team for yes. making magic happen. They've done it all and they're so brilliant. I'm so in awe and I'm so lucky to work alongside them. It's incredible. Is there anything else that we can be looking out for? Of course, the you give, we cook, they eat is still going very strong. And please, if you feel inclined to to donate. Donating because we'll keep doing it as long as we possibly can. And do you know what? People need it. Yes. So definitely donate. What else is going on? I mean, we're probably opening a couple more Draycots, actually. Wow. Where are you guys? Where can we think of? In Studio City in the new Sportsman's Lodge. We're opening there. We're looking at a site in Manhattan Beach. I think we'll probably sign next week and in Pasadena as well. And so, do you know what? I love, I mean, I've always loved the idea of a neighborhood and community and sort of wherever I go, I like to create that. And the Draycott is, is that. We sort of find these lovely little neighborhood restaurants that need a great watering hole or a local pub from London. And if they don't need it, well, I'm going to add another one to it anyway. <laughs> they didn't even know they needed it. But then once it's there, they're like, how was I living with How have I lived without the watermelon picantes? <laughs> and so, yeah, that's happening. I've got a snack food brand out that's quite fun right now. Oh, yeah. Mavericks, which is exclusively in Whole Foods until September and on Amazon. And then we'll be in several other sort of national shops. Um, that's Healthy Kids Snacks, which is something that when we moved to America, you know, eating in London is very different. My kids would sit down at a table and have tea time and cut up apples and cheese and like, cup of tea. Yeah, it was, London is a very different way of eating. Here in America, they're like, 
snacking the whole time in the car on the baseball field. There's like, I, my kids start snacking from 6am and don't stop until midnight. And it's just like nonstop. And I didn't, there weren't a lot of great options on the market as far as healthy, fun snacks. And so after a couple of years in development, that has just hit shelves, which is exciting. That's really exciting. And other than that. And more road trips with your dad, please. All the road trips. I'm like, I'm just going to leave a bag packed in the car. (laughs) Heaven. Okay. The last thing we do, which you can share this with your dad. I mean, I should have just had your dad come on looking up too. You really should have him. He's, by the way, is much clever and optimistic. No, both of you. (laughs) Okay. The last thing that we do on the podcast is I pick a card for my guest from the Things Are Looking Up deck of cards. And so it's totally at random. And this card is going to be yours and your dad's homework for today. Okay, good. We love it. We'll chat about it in the car. Okay. Think about a small step you have taken or that you plan to take today to get you a tiny bit closer to a goal you are currently working towards. Remind yourself that it is the small steps that actually get you closer to the finish line. So step small, but keep stepping. So I that love one that. is for you and your dad. And it was such a pleasure. It was so fun to chat with you. I know it's been a long time in the making and yes. <laughs> I'm... I'm so happy that you took the time out, even on this really special and magical road trip with your dad. And thank you so much for sharing your optimism with us. It is truly palpable. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info and how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.co. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Our theme music is Me and Sade by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.